pray I'll let you do this now. Amen. Amen. Thanks, brother. If you have your Bibles, get those out and open up to Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter in the gospel account according to Matthew. First book of the New Testament, first chapter. Uh, This is a special morning. As Adam said, we're entering into the first week of Advent. Uh, If you're sort of new to churchy words, uh, Advent is an ancient one. Uh, It comes from the Latin term Adventus. Adventus means arrival. So Advent is the the four-week season of kind of anticipation and excitement leading up to Christmas where we get to celebrate God's arrival to this earth. In the birth of Jesus Christ. It's really one of the things that sets Christianity apart from all other religions of the world. We believe that God became a human being. Think about that for a second. That God became a human being. The second member of the divine trinity, God the Son, took on human flesh, moved into the human neighborhood to close the gap between God and man. It's what theologians call the incarnation. Carne, think carnivore means flesh, so the incarnation, God uh, putting on flesh as a man, opening the door for us to relate to the divine in an intimate and personal way. So Advent is a season of celebration, it's a season of excitement, and, and I think this relates well to the sermon series that we've been in this fall in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you remember the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching us about life in the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like? The kingdom that Jesus has brought near to us in his coming. And so for Advent, what we're going to do is flip just a few chapters backwards, and we're going to look at Jesus' arrival, the king's arrival. The king of glory has come. He has come, and this is great news for our weary world and maybe for our weary hearts this morning. The king has come. And the king has come according to plan. According to plan. That's kind of the title of my sermon this morning. According to plan. I'm sure that you've made your plans for Christmas, whether you're staying in Richmond or going out of town, uh, who you plan to spend time with, perhaps which side of the family you plan to disappoint this year, uh, whether you're going to be flying or driving, how much money you plan to spend on gifts. We love to plan. Uh, Even if we don't love to plan, life kind of requires that we do. Uh, But how many of us know that life does not often line up with our expectations, with our with our plans? And maybe that's just me. I know I'm not maybe the best planner, but often for many of us, life does not go according to plan. And and maybe you feel that kind of in a personal way this morning. I think that the end of the year often leads to this time of self-reflection, right? Thinking about the previous year and all that's gone on. Uh, maybe maybe you come in this morning and you feel like, man, you'd, you'd be farther along in life than you are by now. Maybe you feel like things should have turned out differently for you. Uh, maybe you hope that your life would look more like that dream board that you made when, when you were a kid. Maybe you thought you wouldn't have those same nagging struggles that plague your life. Maybe you planned for success or popularity in school or, or a new relationship or a child, but God has withheld it from you. Maybe, for some of you, you're grieving the death of a dream. Life does not go according to plan, but it would actually be more accurate to say that life does not go according to our 
plant. Uh, you see, God doesn't have the same problem that we do. His plan always works out just the way that he intends. We might not know why he's doing what he's doing, why he has us where he has us, but he is doing something, and whatever it is that he's doing, it's according to a plan that was expertly and intimately crafted before the foundations of the earth for your everlasting joy. And we get a glimpse of it in the coming of Jesus to earth, the coming of the king, which was all according to plan. Read along with me, starting in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I thought about continuing through the entire genealogy, but I'm not trying to get run out of here this morning. So skip down to uh, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the living God. May the Holy Spirit write its eternal truths upon our hearts. I want you to see that Jesus' birth, the king's birth, was according to a threefold plan. It was a historical plan, it was an unexpected plan, and it was a redemptive plan. A historical plan, unexpected plan, and redemptive plan. And I think that the more that we can reflect on this plan, God's plan, this Christmas season, the more our hearts can sort of catch up to or perhaps slow down to what God is really doing in our lives. So first, a historical plan. Look again at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Literally in the Greek, it, it reads the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. The book of origins. Every great superhero has an origin story. This is, this is Christ. And the um, original Jewish audience, if they heard these words with ears of faith, would have made the connection to the, to the book of Genesis in the Torah, the first book of the Bible, uh, which chronicles the history of the beginning of the world. They would have understood Matthew as presenting a second Genesis. A new world order is breaking onto the scene. Not just some interesting ideas that he'd like to share with us that might 
sort of influence our, our thinking or our behavior, but a, a cataclysmic historical event that took place in history that reshapes our global history as we know it. It's a historical event centered on the birth of a child who would be named Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus, we'll come back to in a minute, that name, Christ, uh, we tend to use this as like it's a, um, his last name, like the name on the back of his jersey, uh, but Christ w- was a title. It was a, a title with roots to the Old Testament, meaning Messiah or anointed one or king. So you might read it as Jesus, who is the Christ, Jesus, who is the Messiah, the king. And, and really this title tips us off to the strong connection between Jesus and the historic uh, happenings of the Old Testament and promises of the Old Testament. We're not going to go through the entire genealogy, but it's important that we understand why it's here. Like, why is this here? Why is it there in Luke? Why why is it important that we take the time to interact with it a little bit? Well, it's because these these people have historical significance. They're they're real people with real families that people of the day knew about. This is a historical event with historical connections. And I'd like, to, I'd like us to see the two figureheads here that this whole genealogy hinges upon, David and Abraham. David here, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, was thought of like the king of kings for the Jews. He was like the preeminent king. He was like, is like the best president, if you think about the best president we've ever had. This, is like the, this was their best king. Everything tied back to King David. Everybody wanted to kind of... Uh, sort of like make Israel great again, if I could say it that way. They wanted things to go back to the ways that it was when, when David was king, right? They, they, they longed for that day, that ancient day when, when David ruled as king. And so we see that Jesus is connected to him because God had made a promise to David that, a, that an offspring would come from his family line that would set up a kingdom that would last forever, a throne that would last forever. Over and over and over again, the, the kings failed. The, the Israel nation was taken over. They were, they were separated. They were, they were under the occupation of Rome, but a king would come that would set it up forever, that they would win. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13, God says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, when you die, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So like Luke Skywalker, who can say, I'm a Jedi like my father before me. So Jesus can say, I'm a king like my father before me. And he's not just the king whose line goes back to David. It goes further back than that, further back than that to Abraham. He's the offspring of covenant promise. Abraham was the first patriarch that represented the whole nation of Israel. And Jesus here is being put forward as the the offspring of Abraham, who would come to bless not just Israel, but the entire world. Genesis 17, 4 to 8, this is what God said to Abraham. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the, the father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. That's the word, offspring. Throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant so that God would be to you and your offspring, your God and you, his people. 
And the offspring spoken of there is singular. It's pointing to the Messiah. That's what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 3. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, one person who is the Christ. All that to say, Christ is the chosen seed, the offspring of Abraham, the one that God had promised hundreds and hundreds of years before that would come, set up shop, and establish an eternal kingdom for our good. He's the chosen one. You see, God is not just the God of heaven. He's the God of history. He's the God of history. Jesus was chosen in history to redeem history. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, for one, the historical nature of Christ's birth and genealogy matters because uh, it was a falsifiable historical event. It was falsifiable. If you take a, a logic course in school, you learn that, that, it, that an argument or, or a scientific hypothesis has to be falsifiable for it to be sound, for it to be a good hypothesis. You have to be able to look at the evidence and test it to try to prove whether it's true or not. If I just say that I know that Santa exists because I saw him come down my chimney one day, uh, that's not a sound argument because there's no way for us to test that. There's no way for us to know whether or not I actually did or did not see that happen. It's not falsifiable. But who Jesus was and the specific prophecies his birth fulfills is one of the most falsifiable facts in history because of how many details we know about it, because of how many manuscripts we have that write about it, and because of how many people were alive in the time that these manuscripts were being circulated who could have brought up objections and said, no, that's not how it went down. No, that's not who he was. No, that wasn't his family. There are more manuscripts which within the first 200 years of Jesus' life, manuscripts of the Gospels, there are more manuscripts of the Gospels of Jesus in the first 200 years after he was born than we have of Plato's manuscripts within the first 1,000 years that he wrote them. Think about this. There's hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts being circulated around the known world, all writing about this person with all these family connections, right? And there's, there's people of the day that could have written objections and we just do not find them. Where, like, where's Mary's cousin who's like, no, th this isn't how it took place. That's not who he was connected to. No, all these details matter and they, and they make these facts falsifiable. Our hope is not built on some cool ideas. Uh, I mean, many, many religions put forth cool ideas, right? The universe is like this, and it's great because if you just think like this, then everything will be cool. Like, our hope is not built on cool ideas. Our hope is built on a historical person, like a real flesh and blood historical Messiah who entered into flesh and blood history, lived a historical life, died a historical death, stepped out of the tomb in a historical resurrection and is now ruling all of history until the day when he will come back and make everything sad in history come untrue. The historical nature of this plan also matters because it tells us that God cares about your historical life, like the details of your existence the details of our world, no matter how bleak they may seem to us at the time. God cares about every detail of history, including the history of your life. He cares about it. 
and he's at work in it. You may not know exactly what he's up to, but again, whatever it is, it's according to his plan. And we can trust it because Jesus is a good and wise and compassionate king who knows what is best for you. He's at work in the real stuff of your real historical life. God's plan is historical. It's also unexpected. Unexpected. Let's read again verses 18 to 20. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We'll go to verse 20. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. How many, um, how many of you get Christmas gifts for people based upon their like list and w- what they're asking for? You buy, you buy gifts because you know, someone says, this is what I want for Christmas. Is that how you do it? Raise your hand. Lame. That's how I do it. What about uh, surprise gifts? You like to pick something out, special, unique, thoughtful? of you and and now i also know who doesn't get christmas gifts bunch of scrooges out here everybody knows that unexpected gifts are the best a long-awaited king we we can understand that we can understand a long-awaited king but god stepping into history becoming a human being a young woman bearing a child as a virgin now this is unexpected Look again at the second half of verse 18. Before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Think for a moment how crazy this would have been for them. Like we we sterilize these things uh, due to familiarity, but like this would have been a life-altering situation. Maybe some of our young moms can exp- can kind of get your head in this space. Like th- she had never been with a man, and yet she's pregnant. She... she she feels, she knows, she, she has a child in her womb, and she's a virgin. What is going on here? And if it wasn't for this really gracious heads up from the angel, like things would have gone sideways. J- Joseph would have been left to like just believe what Mary was saying. Like, no, it's a, it's a miracle, baby. <laughs> Bad chance. I'm out. Right? But no, the the angel comes and and clears this up. This would have been a life-altering, unexpected event. You you see this really where Jesus, uh, where Joseph kind of heads when he finds this out in verse 19. Being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Adultery was one of the worst crimes you could commit in the day, and that included in times of engagement. Uh, Just to clear this up, if it was... uh, a point of confusion for you. Uh, engagement for us is just kind of the time where you'd start to plan the wedding and send out the invitations and whatever. But for them, en- engagement was really synonymous with the marriage itself. When you were engaged, you were contractually and covenantally bound to that person, even though the, the marriage hadn't been consummated yet, even though you weren't living together. So to to sleep with someone during the time of your engagement would have been 
considered adultery. And for many times in Israel's history, it could have warranted the death penalty, depending on the circumstances. But ever since the Roman occupation, when those laws were disbanded, the normal course of action was divorce. And because Joseph was a just man, meaning he was a law-abiding man, he resolved to divorce her. It was the right thing to do. But God graciously intervened with this message. Just an important point to notice. God's word, God's message, a message from God, a word from God, orients us when things are unexpected and challenging. Look at verse 20. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I want to highlight this word, behold, here for a moment. Same word that uh, the angels used in Luke one thirty one when they spoke to, to Mary. They said, behold, you will bear a son and call his name Jesus. Uh, a pastor friend of mine, David Dwight, pointed out that the word translated behold, the Greek term edu, is used a minimum of 680 times throughout the Bible. And most often it's when God is speaking to people to try to capture their attention. And there's a different Greek word for see or look, which he could have used, but he didn't. He, he used this word translated behold, because behold, uh, that word edu, carries more weight. It's got more gravitas to it. There's a great difference between saying, look, a gold car, and saying, behold, a gold car, right? You're probably not going to hear somebody say that. If someone says, look, a gold car, you're just going to register that on the level of, yeah, there, there's a car. What's the deal? As much as Adam loves his gold Honda Pilot, I don't think anyone's going to be like, behold, the Pilot. Um, you might. You love the Pilot. Maybe if it was a Lamborghini or something. Behold means to pay full attention to, to discern, to understand the full significance of something. It, it means to take it in, take it in. And while this word is scattered throughout the Bible, there's a high concentration of behold, like a spotlight surrounding the birth of Christ in Matthew and Luke's account. This tells us that something out of the ordinary is happening here. It's a big deal. And if we're not paying attention... We might miss something. God's plan is unexpected. Why does this matter? <clears throat> well, personally, one reason why it matters is because it shows us that God loves to work in unexpected ways. So that only he gets the credit. And we would do well to pay attention to that in our own lives. Maybe like we said earlier, you've developed some expectations, some plans, some tracks that your life runs on, and you relate to God on the basis of those expectations. Maybe you feel like God is distant. He's not at work. You don't see him showing up because you're looking in the wrong place. You expect him to, to answer prayers on your terms, to deliver on your terms, to grow your spiritual life on your terms, to snap his fingers and provide everything that you think that you need now. You don't feel like he's showing up because you're looking over here and God, God is actually doing something over here and, it, and in here. 
You might, like many of the Jews, have expected God to rip open the sky and bring his Messiah down to earth in a procession of angels where he will snap his fingers and obliterate the Roman government and set up his throne overnight. But no, he shows up in a womb. He shows up in a bloody manger. The infinite becomes infant. The maker becomes man. The divine becomes despised. The author of all creation comforted in his mother's arms. Behold, God's plan is unexpected, friends. And this unexpected virgin birth also matters because it has massive theological significance, which brings us to our last and final point, God's redemptive plan. God's plan is historical, it is unexpected, and it is redemptive. Pick up in verse 21. The angel continues. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke, awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The fact of the virgin birth was, was not just some God flex so that like we would believe that God does miracles. It, it wasn't just a God flex so that we would even believe that Jesus was the Messiah because he was born of a virgin. And how crazy is that? He must be the Messiah. That's, that's not why primarily he was born of a virgin. Of the hundreds of miraculous events recorded in the Bible, very few of them were for the purpose of God giving evidence of his power. That's not, that's not what he's doing here. This has deeper significance. We don't believe in the virgin birth simply because God does miracles, which we do believe that. We believe in the virgin birth because scripture teaches it was an absolute necessity in order to bring about our salvation. You remember at the very beginning of our human story, Adam and Eve, they had an opportunity to commune with God perfectly with no barriers between them. And they rebelled, and they fell, and God cursed them. And so for generation after generation after generation, human beings, you and I, are born into a curse because God cursed us. God cursed us because of our rebellion. And now through our, our DNA, we are born with a, with a sinful nature, a wholly corrupt and depraved nature that in our natural state is hostile to God. We hate him. We hate one that would tell us what to do. That's our line. That's our history. That's where, what we're born into. The only way for that curse to be broken is for one to come into the world and, and break that curse, one who is not corrupted by it, one who is free from it, who can come in from the outside and intervene, one who is not corrupt because of the sinful nature of man. You remember in, in the garden, the, the proto-euangelion, the, the first gospel, when God speaks to the serpent who deceived Eve, he says, there's going to be a war that's going to come. There's going to be a war between, between the, the woman's offspring and your offspring. 
and, and you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. The, the original Hebrew readers of that would have been like, this is such a strange thing for God to say. We don't speak about the woman's offspring. That's, that's not how we talk about offspring. The, the, the word offspring is transliterated. It's sperma, sperma, right? This is something that's tied to the man. It's the man's seed, the man's offspring. What, what are we talking about, the, the offspring of the woman? That doesn't make sense. And yet here we have a, a virgin birth. We have a child who's born not of man and woman, but born of woman. In other words, Jesus was free of, of the stain, of the corrupt nature, of the, of the curse of sin. He was the only human being before Adam and Eve that was brought into this world without a sinful nature, a corrupt nature. So he actually could go through life and perfectly submit to God's commands. He could represent us before the Father as a perfect mediator. And then when he died, the, the death that we deserve, his precious life qualifies to save us from our sin because of how precious it is. He was so perfect, so precious, so divine that his broken body and spilled blood and poured out life is sufficient to purchase your redemption. And this is why his name is Jesus, Yeshua, Yeshua, yay, God, Shua, saves, God saves, is who he is, Jesus is, God saves. He doesn't leave us in the mess that we made for ourselves. He doesn't say, hey, you made that bed, you sleep in it. He doesn't recoil from us. He steps down into the mess as one of us, bears us up on his back and carries us out of the grave. This is who he is. Yeshua, our king, our savior, God saves. Ephesians 1, 7 to 10, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Hear this, friends. Hear this, my sinful friends. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Friends, good news, the king has come. He's come according to plan. And he's come for you and your redemption. God's plan is historical. It can be trusted. And it has bearing on our, the historical details of our life. It is unexpected. The way that God works, his saving power in our life is often very, very different from what we expect him to do. Very upside down. Often comes through the hard stuff of life. And it is redemptive. God's ultimate purpose is to bring about your redemption and he will do this because God always gets what he wants. So how do we apply this? to go back to a word we, we double-clicked on earlier. 
I think we apply this by beholding. We behold. We behold. We behold. We behold the plan of God. As one of my favorite songs says, come, behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity, in our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Behold. Means we got to slow down and pay attention to what this season is about. Right? Pay attention to what God is doing here. When we come and light the candle, right? Don't just blaze over that in your mind as like a, a fun little thing that we do for Advent. Like, look at the light. Look at it. Reflect. Think about how the light of Christ has come into our darkness. Behold the beauty of Christ. And behold, pay attention to what God is doing in your life. And maybe it's in unexpected ways. Maybe God is doing more in the mess than he is in the, the fun, happy, comfortable stuff. What is he doing? Pay attention. Behold. Behold God's work in history, this unexpected, redemptive work that will one day be brought to completion. And, and on that day, we will all behold. In fact, everyone will behold, whether they like it or not. We will behold the return of the king. And on that day, everything will be made new. So let's behold our good king together. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we turn our attention now to you and we thank you for your wise plan, the mystery that was set forth from the beginning of time, this plan to unite all things, to unite us to you through the person of Christ, which could only take place through this historic, unexpected, redemptive birth of a little baby boy. Thank you, God, for coming to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would not grow distracted, that we would not grow too busy, that we would not grow too discouraged about the hard stuff of life, to miss the beauty of what you're doing. I pray that as we take communion, as we sing, as we see this candle lit, and we look at that flame and we see that light, that, that it would actually settle in to our hearts, that we would take it in. that you are bringing about our redemption, that the light has come and it's come according to plan. Stir our hearts of worship, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.